Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Somewhere, just outside the focus of your conscious mind, you have always known that this show is a member of the Agora Podcast Network, a collective of podcasts that exist outside of the tradition of criticism. This month we are promoting the various shows produced by friend of the show Travis Dow, under the Podcastnik moniker. I think most appropriate for this group is the History of Germany podcast, though I've been a fan of all of Trav's shows for many's the year. To learn more about Podcastnik or any of the other great shows on Agora, check out agorapodcastnetwork.com. This month's show is also brought to you by the History of Vikings podcast, a show that delves into various topics in the exciting history of the Vikings, a people who have come in and out of this show and who have captured the European imagination for centuries. To learn more about the History of Vikings podcast, visit thehistoryofvikings.com. This month's show is also brought to you by onlinegreatbooks.com. Now, I have always been a voracious reader, but these days, between a full-time job, the podcast, a toddler, and the siren call of social media, I sometimes have trouble keeping up with the reading I have to do for the show, let alone pursuing loftier goals like developing my knowledge of great books or self-improvement. OnlineGreatBooks.com is designed to help you develop a regular habit of reading the great books. Weekly reading goals, reading reminders, accountability tools, and a dedicated community of fellow readers help keep you on track and on schedule with your reading. The OnlineGreatBooks.com check-in and reading goal system is designed to help you progress through the great books with just three one-hour reading sessions each week. Every month, OnlineGreatBooks.com ships a carefully selected edition of one of the great books directly to your home. And... We begin with Homer and progress through works by Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Shakespeare, and the moderns. Each month you'll meet in a two-hour video conference to discuss your text with a small community of readers in a Socratic seminar led by a trained Socratic host. Go to OnlineGreatBooks.com to join the VIP list and receive an executive book summary, a digest of the reading list, and more. If you're interested in developing a lifelong habit of reading and studying the great books, go to OnlineGreatBooks.com and enter the promo code WIT, W-I-T, to get 25% off your first three months. As a bonus, I'll get a little something from it. Okay, have the suits gone? Alright, this month's show is really brought to you by you guys. Or at least, some of you guys. Sure, the ad revenue helps, but the lights are kept on and the sources are really purchased by the money I get from my glorious patrons and my magnificent donors. Our first patron, worthy of honor and praise, shall be known henceforward as Dylan, the Knight of a Thousand Muffins. Next is patron Tim, who shall be known henceforward as Sir Tim, Actuary at Arms. 
And finally, we have Donor Michael, who shall be known henceforward as Michael Fatch Knight. If you would like to join the serried ranks of our donors and patrons, head on over to the website. If you go to the store page, there are links and buttons that will get you to our Patreon page or you, to, to allow you to make a secure donation on PayPal. Both are wonderful, and both theoretically come with swag, though I haven't said that out in a while. Sorry. And, of course, thank you so, so much to all of our patrons and donors, uh, past and present, and to all of you for listening. If you don't feel up to donating at this time in a monetary fashion, then consider going to iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice and leaving a five-star written review. Thank you very much. Hello, all. Today's episode is going to be a discussion about Pope Gregory I with Steve Guerra from the History of Papacy podcast. Um, I'll get onto it a little bit more in the actual body of the show, but as you'll have noticed, it's a fairly long show. So I am splitting it in two. I'm just not putting it in two episodes uh, for everyone's convenience. But I know a lot of you don't like particularly long shows, so for uh, the sake of those who are so inclined, I have inserted... I have inserted an intermission at a rough halfway point in the show, so fear not, your needs are have been seen to. Uh, and now, let us get to the show. Since, then, we have shown what manner of man the pastor ought to be, let us now set forth after what manner he should teach. For, as long before us, Gregory Nazianzen, of reverend memory, has taught... One and the same exhortation does not suit all, inasmuch as all are not bound together by similarity of character. For the things that profit some often hurt others, seeing that also, for the most part, herbs which nourish some animals are fatal to others, and the gentle hissing that quiets horses incites whelps, and the medicine which abates one disease aggravates another, and the food which invigorates the life of the strong kills little children." Therefore, according to the quality of the hearers, ought the discourse of teachers to be fashioned, so as to suit all and each for their several needs, and yet never deviate from the art of common edification. For what are the intent minds of hearers but, so to speak, a kind of harp, which the skillful player, in order to produce a tune possessing harmony, strikes in various ways? And for this reason the strings render back a melodious sound, because they are struck indeed with one quill, but not with one kind of stroke. Whence every teacher also, that he may edify all in the one virtue of charity, ought to touch the hearts of his hearers out of one doctrine, but not with one and the same exhortation. Quote from the Book of Pastoral Rule by Pope Gregory I. Quote read by James Early from the Presidential Fight Club podcast and the American History Fanatics Facebook page. Check him out. Everyone's right and no one is sorry That's the start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets to the call in the morning Greetings, my name is Benjamin Jacobs, and this is episode 44, A Tale of Two Gregories, part one. Gregory the Great with Steve Guerra of the History of the Papacy podcast. We are approaching a milestone in our discussion of the Middle Ages. 
the years between 1000 and 1300, set in motion massive changes in European society that would have a major impact on the early modern period, aka the point of this show. Many historians now argue that the modern period actually began in 1300. The reforms of the papacy, starting with Gregory VII that I referenced last episode, were pivotal to that change, but they did not come out of nowhere. Now, I think I've done a decent job in the last two episodes in sort of setting the stage in terms of the organized shape of the church, and in the many episodes before that of setting the stage for Europe in general, but I've left out a lot of the nitty-gritty details of the specific actions taken by the popes as individuals. For the most part, this was a choice made in the interest of time, because there are other better podcasts that will be covering these topics. For example, The History of the Papacy with Steve Guerra. I also made this choice because most of the popes in our timeline have been fairly generic, and I'm also sort of a person with a bias towards social history rather than focusing on the actions of great men, you may have noticed. But in doing things this way, I have to admit a mea culpa, and I skipped over Gregory the Great, aka Gregory I. I thought I could get away with it. He didn't seem all that pertinent to the early modern period, but all my sources talk about him in length, and so here we are. I clearly screwed up in skipping him. I didn't want to do it, but I have to. Given my reluctance and unfamiliarity, I thought it would be useful to bring in an outside expert to help us get through this. And so we are joined today by Steve Guerra, the creator and talent behind the excellent History of the Papacy podcast, a fellow member of the Agora Podcast Network, a friend of the show, and a fan of fine craft beers. Steve, welcome. Thank you so much for having me on. That's, um, I love talking about Gregory, so this is awesome. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, of course, wonderful to have you. Now, as we start up on the this discussion of Gregory the Great, I should help position us a little bit uh, in who we are talking about. I, I referenced a Pope Gregory in the last episode. As I said before, that is Gregory VII. There have actually been 16 Catholic popes named Gregory and two anti-popes. This one that we're going to be talking about today is Pope Gregory I. Gregory is a towering figure in the history of Catholicism in Europe. He's, his papacy began in 590, and um, he's one of only two popes to be called the Great. I think one of the big things that we're going to be talking about today is how we feel about that. But let's start by getting through some, some background and some biographical materials. Gregory was born roughly 540, we'll talk about that, uh, but in the background of the migration period, the rough part of European history, the early Middle Ages, uh, when the empire was falling apart, and um, in particular, in the context of the the Italian wars and the plagues of Justinian. Uh, Steve, do you want to give us a little bit of background about uh, the context that Gregory came into? So um, Gregory was born, like you said, in about 540. They don't have a record for that, which is interesting. But that's right around the end. Or the, actually, it's I'm not as familiar with the uh, Italian Wars, but there's that's kind of in the middle-ish of the Byzantine period where they were attacking in the Wars of Justinian. That was a really interesting time because a lot of scholars say that that really was the end of the Western Roman Empire, not not as much 476. Things pretty much carried over the 
institutions of the Roman Empire under the Goths, but maybe not all of the pomp and circumstance of an emperor, but the socially speaking and governmentally speaking. But when Justinian came in and conquered Italy, that's when the floor really fell out from uh, the Western Roman Empire, especially in Italy. Um, like you said, there was the um, there was the plague of Justinian, with, where a lot of people died. There was a climate change where a lot of people died. There was crop failures where a lot of people died. And for me, I know a lot of people don't like the term dark ages, but I'd have to say, like, if you were an Italian who was born in the early 500s and was lucky enough to live into the mid 500s, it was probably looked pretty dark to you. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I I mean, I've certainly tried to avoid that term in in my show, but I I agree that, you know, in terms of a a lack of written material and the archaeological evidence of like people living in these hollowed out cities, uh, it, it seems as much like an apocalypse as anything we can conceive of. Yeah, like a, you know, like a bad uh, post-apocalyptic novel when you're looking (laughs) at Rome that had maybe 100,000 people or less, but then it's down to 10, 30,000 people within a few decades. You know, people farming, uh, people grazing cattle on the farm and stuff like that. Uh, And that's, you know, attested in the archaeology, not just the written sources. Yeah, Justinian pretty much was still working in that old Roman Empire fashion of uh, making a desert and calling it peace, except that he didn't get the chance to like rebuild things afterwards and make a new Pax Romana because, you know, unbeknownst to him and his generals, his conquest of Italy was immediately followed by the plague of Justinian and then the Persian Wars and eventually the the rise of. Islam. And uh, ultimately, that was sort of the high point of the the reassertion of the Byzantine Empire. And it really left Italy an absolute mess. Uh, you know, that they were, he, he sent in too small a force, they didn't have enough to uh, just conquer everything outright. So it became a series of running battles, lots of sieges, which are always super destructive. Um, and then, of course, the plague and the climate change was probably more of a long-term thing. We discussed in, in my episodes on Italy, the uh, deforestation of central and southern Italy creating um, real problems. Uh, so anyway, I, I think that's enough on the background of Italy in general. Um, what was, you know, what was the place of the, the papacy within all this? How firmly, how, how coherent was the church at this point? I put in a lot of notes here so you can shut me down whenever you want, but I think it's kind of interesting that these were the power of the papacy. You kind of have, you have to completely forget everything you know about the papacy because it really didn't exist at this point. The Pope was titularly the head of the Western church, the, um, the patriarchate of Rome Uh, had the largest area geographically. Now, I use that term patriarchate. There was three, or excuse me, there was five patriarchates or like head bishops in Christendom at that time. There was Constantinople, Alexandria, Antioch, and Jerusalem. You can kind of throw in there, but that was more of a uh, 
a, a bonus prize that they ca- they gave to Jerusalem. <laughs> the real powerful yeah. ones were Constantinople, Alexandria, and Antioch. And Rome had the largest geographical territory. It was everything in Western Europe, the Balkans and Greece, along with uh, the Western section of North Africa, like basically Hmm. everything East or West rather of modern day Libya. So that's a huge territory. And it was a fairly diverse territory, probably less diverse than you would imagine it today, but still very diverse. Well, less diverse than today, but still fairly diverse uh, what kind of actual control did Rome actually have over, you know, they basic, it was basically the only patriarchate of the entire Latin West. How much, you know, how much control did they have? You have, have to political power, basically none. They had some influence, but politically almost none. Theologically, in theory, they had control over these areas but from each each area geographically it was more or less uh the the pope was pretty powerful in central italy sicily and southern italy but if you take a look at a place like northern africa there was a splinter group called the donatists that had started in about the during the time of Diocletian in the 300s, late 200s, early 300s, that was still powerful and growing more powerful. And they were a splinter group where the Pope had very little control over them. You had uh, just to the east of the Italian peninsula in Greece and the Balkans, where they used their position in between Constantinople and Rome to basically do whatever they wanted to. And culturally, they were more connected to Constantinople. So anything that the Pope said that they didn't like, they would just ignore and look to Constantinople. So that was a constant clash. An interesting one that'll come up as we talk more is in Britain. And Britain, traditionally, people think, well, that's after the Anglo-Saxons came, it was pagan. But more modern archaeology and genetic studies shows that a lot of the Celtic population was still there. And there was probably a lot more Christianity there. It just wasn't very well organized. Yeah. And then um, the urban areas of Gaul and modern day France, especially in southern France, like Arles, they were trying to exert independence over the papacy and the papacy over the course of the last the few decades uh, prior to Gregory would have more or less success of trying to rein them in. Certain seas wanted to be more independent or less, and um, that was a constant struggle for the papacy. Yeah, I know the the uh, there was always one city or another that was trying to get the the Frankish emperors to make them patriarchs of you know to raise them to the patriarchate and it was always like just one early death away from happening (laughs) then you have spain which was um officially run by arians but it had an it did have a significant catholic population as well 
So you had Aryans actually in North Africa and in Spain, which makes things very interesting because that's another, at least the Donatists, they were elite, they were mostly on the same page as the Catholics, where the Aryans were on an entirely different page. Right. So you have that as well, where the popes had zero control over them or influence over them. During Gregory's reign, mm-hmm. the king of the Visigoths in Spain did convert to Catholicism, which then, you know, the it became that became more popular amongst the ruling no, nobility. Gregory didn't have a whole lot to do. I think that was forces that were well on the way before Gregory hit the scene that they were going to become Catholic. But so, I mean, it was really splintered the whole, that whole patriarchate. I mean, it's not like the Pope had any control over the selection of bishops or anything. Those were all elected basically. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, So I think that's a good background to just get us started. Um, what, what do we know about Gregory's early life? Um, yeah, he was from a senatorial family, a wealthy family, but that was also really steeped in Christianity. He had two or three aunts who were already nuns, two papal ancestors, Pope Felix the Third in the late four hundreds, and then um, his this name is so hard, Agapetus who was a um, not a direct relative, I think he was, but um, in his papacy was a few decades before, but he was in that family. So it's... Right. And that, that was pretty common at the times. The aristocracy was growing into the church at this time. Right. It was the only way to exert any kind of... It was the only form of political organization that Italy really yeah. had at that point. So... And he, uh, Gregory received the best education possible in Rome, but that education might not have been to the quality that just a few, that was possible just a few decades previous to that. Yeah. And a lot of scholars even question what level of proficiency Gregory had in Greek. He probably spoke it. And given what he, um, some of the things he did in his later life, it's kind of hard to believe that he didn't at least speak Greek. But his um, knowledge of academic and high arts Greek was probably not where it would have been earlier in the uh, sixth century. Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I know from my reading that there were like a bunch of Greek monasteries scattered around Rome, which is something that I've always been fascinated by and haven't had the opportunity to go down that rabbit hole in my own research. But um, yeah, it it, may, it does make sense that, you know, actually getting an education in Greek wouldn't necessarily have been super possible given the time period. Um, but speaking of monasteries, um, how did uh, how did Gregory enter the church? He became a monk and that um, that's what his true love was. You see that in every source. That's all he really wanted to be was a, a monastic. Mm hmm. But he also, he started several monasteries throughout Italy, and that sort of foreshadows uh, his ability as an organizer. After that, he was called up because he was educated and he was from the right family. His father held a secular post in the Roman government, 
And I think he okay. was a senator or something for what the state right. was worth at that time. Sure. But that made um, Gregory a prime candidate to be a papal representative. Nowadays, they call them nuncios. They had a Greek name for that back mm-hmm. then, but it's basically this. It's a ambassador of the Pope to the um, to the Emperor in Constantinople, right? Uh, just to to double back to the monasticism, I, I read briefly that he had actually turned, like, after his father died, he turned his father's estate into a monastery. <laughs> which is, I th- I thought that was an interesting story. Yeah, their mansion on the Calian Hill in Rome, he turned into a monastery, Saint Andrew's, I believe it was called. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought that, that was interesting. So, um, it, people politics at this time is fascinating and I've been fighting to, uh, avoid running down that rabbit hole with the show, uh, and doing another, uh, uh, Gadeshi kind of <laughs> series. Uh, but so, so how did Gregory become Pope? Cause it's, it's, it's odd that someone who's so, uh, free from scandal essentially (laughs) ended up becoming pope at that time the story at least is that everybody came together and saw that he was well he was in constantinople we should probably say that from 579 to 586 and he had a hit or miss relationship with the he got along well with the emperor but he clashed with the patriarch of constantinople who was starting at that time to be called the ecumenical patriarch, which meant like worldwide patriarch. Ah, okay, yeah. And that was a sticking point. It sounds like a silly sticking point, but there was a whole history of Constantinople. Constantinople wasn't a patriarchate until Constantine made Constantinople a patriarchate. Right. And then... He, it's uh, slowly Constantinople went from it wasn't a patriarchate, it became a patriarchate. Then they said, Oh, it's only second to Rome. And then another council made it, Well, it's not quite second to Rome, it's like Rome's <laughs> little brother, but his Rome's better little brother. <laughs> and the popes were never okay with that, right? And to be fair, that's not pure ego there was a certain amount of sort of the the way that uh these things were supposed to be justified was you're supposed to have an an apostle that founded your 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 city and uh you know rome had two yeah (laughs) and who, who knew what byzantium was at the time that uh that the apostles were around but anyway <laughs> and another little factoid that i thought was interesting and you get it a little bit you get a better view of constantinople's and the patriarch of constantinople's perspective is that the title ecumenical was added to all of the emperor's main advisors and it was mm-hmm. sort of just to say like the roman Emp- eastern roman empire is the center of the world and the ecumenical garbage collector was like the garbage collector so it's kind of you can see why somebody would take it the wrong way but you could also see well maybe they're just making a mountain out of a molehill with that title right. 
Yeah. Gregory is acclaimed and elected pope, but he was still just a junior deacon. He wasn't even a priest at that point, which wasn't entirely unusual. It was unusual in the fact that Gregory was young to be elected pope and relatively green. Yeah, one one thing I've noticed, and this is sort of an interesting, this is a total aside, it's an interesting paras- parallel with Venetian politics. Uh, when things got really contentious in Rome, they would always go for these like septuagenarians or octogenarians, which in the Middle Ages, that was just like punting because, you know, they're only going to live for a year or two. <laughs> but that was that was like a feature of the Venetian system. It's like we always pick someone who's over 60 because you know, no matter how bad they are, we know they're going to die in a couple of years. It's interesting with Gregory that at this point he went or he petitioned the Roman emperor, the Eastern Roman emperor Maurice to mm-hmm. not be a, not for Maurice to not accept his election as papacy. So at that point, the Byzantine <laughs> emperor had to stamp at least um, officially that he was allowing someone to become the papacy, which I think, in a, as a mod, you know, standing in modern times, looking back, you'd be like, why would the Eastern Roman emperor have to put a stamp on who was becoming Pope? And that fits the papacy into this bigger time period called the Byzantine papacy. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the whole Eastern empire was much, you know, the, the I mean, the, the whole the, the term Kaiseropapism comes from the Eastern Empire and, and the ancient, the, the late antique period and the way that the empire worked is there was the, the church and the state were completely intertwined and the, the church was supposed to justify the state and the state was supposed to protect and help organize the church. And part of that was that the emperor had some say in who got to be bishop and who got to be priests and stuff. That really... Which is interesting. Sorry, go ahead. That really connects it to, uh, connects to the entire history of Christianity to that point where the a bishop and a priest was not a political position, and they really had to be connected to the political authorities. That was that was something that they had always talked about that there was an emperor and a bishop. It was a it was an early form of the separation of church and states. It's things yeah. are starting to change at this point because the state or the political entity is collapsing and there's nobody to fill the void. Yeah, and and I, and I think that it, it's it goes to a lot of, you know, just broadly speaking, a lot of the interesting contradictions in, in Christianity in general and Catholicism and Orthodoxy in particular date back to the moment when, you know, this insurgent religion of crazy radicals suddenly became the official religion of the empire when Constantine converted. And just they spent then centuries trying to reconcile this religion, which had a lot of baked in suspicion of authority with the fact that now they were supposed to be propping up authority. (laughs) Yeah, that, that was a definitely a conflict area for a long time. So I, I think this actually gets us to a little bit more context about where Gregor, what Gregory came into when he became Pope. Uh, in 
we talked a bit about the Italian wars, but to, to give a little bit more context, that after everything sort of went downhill with the Byzantine Empire and the Persian Wars and the plague and then the, the rise of Islam in the East, um, the Byzantines couldn't really devote resources to Italy. And so to finish off the, the Ostrogoths and everything, they started using diplomacy to try and get different groups to fight each other. And one of the things they did was to get the Lombards to invade Italy. Uh, and as we covered in my show in a little bit more depth, the Lombards kind of wiped the floor up with the Ostrogoths and then just kept going, which then left the Byzantine holdings in Italy facing this wave of Lombard invaders coming into Italy. Um, and basically everything that wasn't super strongly fortified fell pretty quickly, which left the Byzantines with these sort of very tenuous hold, uh, holdings. Uh, there was sort of a, a five city area in Northern Italy around Ravenna and then Rome. Uh, and this thin strip connecting them that was basically, if you look, geographically on a, on a topographical map. It was just this valley that went between the two ridges of the Apennines. So it was uh, walled off by mountains. And then they had a bunch of fortified cities along the coast and sort of Southern Italy hadn't fallen yet because it was just too far away. Um, but about, you know, North and South of this strip in central Italy, the Lombards had taken things over. And so the main, uh, thing that the the papacy was facing at this point from a geopolitical standpoint was the fact that they were in the situation where they legally they respected imperial law they were loyal to the byzantines but byzantine power was failing in the war against the lombards um and so how, how does how does this come into play with his paper his uh his rule it's interesting in several ways. This is the point where the the Pope Pope Gregory had a lot of trouble with the Exarch of Ravenna, that was the right. Byzantine representative in Italy, the leader in Italy, and Gregory could not get any help from him. I don't remember his name. I don't even think it's really important. Yeah, he no. he Gregory could not get any help from him. Plus. This is where in the East, Constantinople was constantly fighting these issues with the Monophysites. That was a rival Christian theological position that was incredibly important in the East. There was the Council of Chalcedon in 451 where the Chalcedonians, they were the ones whose position was forwarded in in this council. They were mostly in northern section of the Mediterranean and in the western section, where in the Middle right. East and in Egypt, this Monophysite position won out. And Constantinople was constantly trying to square the circle with Chalcedonianism and Monophysitism just so that they could live together and be one empire. It's Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the weaknesses of basing your imperial ideology on religion. Yeah. <laughs> you know, if, if some group decides that they disagree, they're willing to go to the wall for it. And all of a sudden, your, your political empire is like, well, 
I mean, this isn't really the important thing. The important thing is fighting the Persians, but now all of a sudden we need to figure out how to <laughs> live together. And one of the issues was that the Chalcedonians in the West, they didn't care about the Monophysites, and they certainly didn't care to make any compromise with them. And right. the Monophysites living in Egypt particularly had zero interest in making any compromise with the Chalcedonians. So those right. battle lines were drawn. And so th that's what made it so difficult with, for the emperors in Constantinople, because they had to constantly try to compromise <laughs> and they would. Yeah. I mean, the, the emperor is going like, I need these guys to fight the, the Persians. They're right on the border. And the Pope's going, uh, uh border. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was one compromise after another that the, emperor would come up with the Honoticon was one that caused a huge schism between Rome and Constantinople about a hundred years previous to this. Then there's monophyletism, monoenergism. They come up with all these different, um, essentially they're not even theological compromises. They're political compromises that nobody buys into. Right. So, I mean, with, with all this stuff going on, that sort of creates a, a, political tension between Gregory and the Byzantines. Yeah. In, sh in short, that's where, th that's where that gets, uh, that political controversy of the East gets injected into Italy is that the official position of the people of the Byzantine representatives in Ravenna is this monothletism that the popes are like, we're not, this is crazy. We're not going to compromise with this. And that was one of Gregory's mm. jobs, pre-Pope was to try and work with um, the Venetians and in Ravenna to make a compromise and that he could not get a compromise out of them. That, that's one of his big failures is that he could not get a compromise or right. I don't even think they were really going for compromise. They were trying to just get the Byzantines to become Chalcedonians. Yeah. It's it's interesting. I read a little bit that um, you know, sort of offhand in one of my sources that while since while this is going on, the Lombards are coming in and they're Aryans. Yeah. <laughs> so you've got a mostly Catholic population. You've got Aryan invaders, and then at you know in the middle of all this, a couple of the bishops in northern Italy ended up converting to either monophotism or monophyletism, which just throws all the cards up in the air for a little while. <laughs> Plus, Arianism was so different. I haven't found any great sources about their actual practice, but their their genuine yeah. general beliefs were quite divergent from mainstream Catholicism, monophysitism, or Chalcedonian. It doesn't either of them. It was very, yeah. very different from those two. Yeah. Which at first, I think a lot of these German invaders thought that that was going to be a strength, that they, they wanted to keep themselves somewhat aloof from the population in general and sort of uh, really live as a military caste with completely different uh, practices and lifestyles and everything. They, they A lot of them set themselves up in like camps outside of cities for long term periods. But uh, in the end, that cr created problems. Uh, being so separated from the population. 
I also think when they started to marry in, and this is a definitely a yeah. bird walk, but they once they started marrying into the existing aristocracy, it was hard for them to maintain that separate culture when they're adopting so many different aspects of the local culture. Yeah. There just wasn't many of them. Yeah, definitely. The result is actually pretty interesting. Italy... Obviously, Italian is one of the languages that's most close to Latin, but there actually are a ton of German loanwords and uh, a lot of German influence on the legal code that then you didn't see in places like uh, um, Provence in southern France, which had more of a had, had less influence from Germanic invaders to a certain extent. So th- that mixing is is all fascinating. Yeah, definitely. So how did how did Gregory deal with the Lombards since you know he he couldn't necessarily rely on the Byzantines for help? Well, that's the thing. All of that, prob- all of those problems that Gregory was having with the Byzantines and the Byzantines being either not able or not wanting to provide military support, Rome was under attack by these Lombards. He was the last man standing. There was no civil authority to take over. So that's where somebody like Gregory, he's coming in and he's organizing the militia. He's hiring generals. He is organizing defenses. He's making treaties with the Lombards. And maybe we won't call them treaties. Maybe it's just paying them off to not attack at that moment. I mean, it's much more ad hoc than treaties. So because I mean, technically he didn't have an authority to make a treaty. Well, since, since he had no authority and civil society had fallen apart, uh, forgive the obvious leading question, but so how did he pay for all this? That's the Roman church had enormous amounts of productive land all throughout from basically from the time of Constantine, the the secular government, the civil government donated property to the church when rich aristocrats would donate property to the church. I mean, even common people would donate property and assets to the church. So all throughout the Italian peninsula into Italy and even in North Africa, the popes owned wealthy, productive lands that mm. they could garner resources from. Yeah. So, and, you know, that made, that land was really spread out. So it was very unlikely that any one, you know, any one invasion would knock it all out. Then it also, but then one of the problems is that at that time it was hard to communicate and there really wasn't an organization set up to mm-hmm. pull all those resources together and keep them moving smoothly, which was an issue. Yeah. So uh, one interesting point just before we, we, we move on is it's interesting that the Roman, the uh, the political system lost its ability to compel people to uh, pay their taxes and stuff, but people were voluntarily giving taxes essentially to the, the church. And so that, that became the new government. <laughs> it's an interesting point. We had talked about that in our episode with the warrior bishops. Yeah, yeah. Where... Oftentimes these bishops, it wasn't that they usurped power. It's that the 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 traditional civil power is gone. The especially in this happened a lot more in Northern Europe 
than it did in these areas. But there's nobody else there. The aristocrats moved there to uh, their country manners and left the city. And there's nobody in the city to run the show anymore. Yeah, yeah. So what did, uh, apart from paying the militia and hiring generals, what else did uh, Gregory do with all this, uh, these, these resources that he couldn't necessarily access because they were all over the place? One of Gregory's main things, at least that are attributed to him, is that he put what they called a rector in charge of the papal properties. And these rectors answered directly to the pope with no nobody in between, or at least technically no nobody in between. Mm-hmm. So that gave the Pope a lot more central control over all of these disparate properties and supposedly helped them run more efficiently. He also, there was, um, this, these were set up, these seven dioceses of Rome, they're called the suburban, suburbican dioceses. Right. They became, throughout time, the most important uh, papal advisors, even to this day, they're the top advisors and they hold the top positions in the papal curia or a central governing committee. They're basically, they were given the title of the people who were overseeing these dioceses were basically bishops, but they, they would come to be called cardinals, right? Yes. Uh, Much later. This is, yeah, the, they are the, core of the College of Cardinals, these seven bishops, and they were given the authority or more the responsibility to feed the poor and keep things running smoothly in their little diocese around Rome. They said at one point that the papal uh, authority, the church was feeding up to 30,000 people a day. Now that could be an expanded number, but it was still, they were the ones who were giving alms and keeping things, uh, keeping things going. That won a lot of uh, political, well, that won a lot of respect from the population, uh, I would assume. Oh yeah, for sure. That's, um, you know, obviously if you're the person who's keeping this keeping the city relatively safe and you're feeding them and the Byzantine emperor, whether he can do something or he can't do something, if he's not doing anything, his stock is getting lowered. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So that sort of moved the traditional source of authority off of, you know, the emperor delegates to the Pope, but now it's just, we just like the Pope because he's feeding us and the emperor is not really doing anything. And I would just mention that if you if you're looking at that, uh, what Gregory did was set up the medieval age of the papacy, setting up the getting the cardinal uh, college of cardinals going. That's a huge piece of the pie. Yeah, definitely. So just just to round the story off before we start digging in a little deeper, um, he eventually died. Obviously. <laughs> um, can you just run through uh, a little bit about his death? Just to wrap the story Traditionally, up. they it's he died in five ninety from a series of illnesses, gout, uh, everything that basically all the the contemporary records and contemporary writers at the time 
attributed it to his extreme asceticism. And uh, one way or the other, he was old and he was going to die. Sure. But uh, he had a big legacy attached to him uh, post-mortem. Right. Some of which is uh, we modern historians agree with and some of which they don't. So let's let's get into that. Hello, everybody. Uh, very quickly, uh, as I said at the opening, this is a very long episode, and I know some of you don't like uh, super long episodes, so this seems like a good point to break. This is going to be our intermission for this episode rather than posting two episodes. So um, if you have anything you need to go do, uh, pause it here and go do that. Uh, otherwise, please enjoy some restful music while we, int- while we have our intermission. Thank you very much. said at the start, Gregory is one of only two popes known as the Great. Um, And we're definitely going to talk about how we feel about that label, but let's run through some of the uh, achievements that are attributed to him. Um, Let's sort of go through uh, this sort of category by category. I think one of the big things people know him for is in the arts, Um, but maybe that's not necessarily accurate. Uh, What do you have on that? One really big thing that's attached to Gregory is the Gregorian chant, which most people are probably familiar with. He probably had next to nothing to do with that. There was a form of, it was called Roman chant, Mm -hmm. but everywhere had a specific singing style. The Byzantines had a singing style. The Middle East had a singing style. Spain had a singing style. Even Milan had a particular style of singing, which you'd probably, I I can't tell the difference between (laughs) a lot of them. They sound very similar. Yeah. But uh, Gregor, the the Gregorian chant was a it was a standardization of a chanting style. I did an episode on this. If people really want the nitty gritty of the Gregorian chant, but basically there was no, at least in Western Europe, there was no way to write down how something is sung, like the melody of it. Right, and about. 200-ish years after Gregory, a system was developed of at least getting the bare bones of how to sing. Right. So you could write that down and transfer it. And the person who invented that attributed it to Gregory without any really good reason to say why to attribute it to gregory so that was like the 700s there was kind of a lot of that going around in the church to say at that point between then and around a thousand there was a the church is sort of notorious for well-intentioned or otherwise forgeries (laughs) um it was created up in prankish lands yeah and they put a better (laughs) Damp, a better spin on it. Let's call it uh, Gregorian. He yeah, was great. Sure. Let's go with it. Um, so 
Are there any other artistic works that are sort of worthy uh, achievements from Gregory's time that are worthy of note? Or is that, that the only one that people think of? Those were the big ones that I okay. know of. I don't think I read anything specific about anything such as like um, yeah. iconography or painting yeah. or anything like that. So theologically, um, Gregory is one of the powerhouses of the early church, I'd say, or the medieval church. Um, he's one of the first popes for whom we have a real body of work that survives. By my count, we have four major works, um, a large number of sermons, and over 800 letters. Amongst the major works is, and I should say that that's uh, not not that I went through the papal library and counted, that's from my sources. Um <laughs> But amongst the major works is A Popular Life of St. Benedict, something that likely started building the reputation of Benedict's order in Rome, which would have importance later on, uh, as we talked about in my last episode. Um, But I think more importantly for our purposes going forward, uh, there was the Book of Pastoral Rule. Can you tell us anything about that? That was one of the books that he wrote that really had a long-lasting influence, and that was a book detailing how bishops and priests should live and how they should basically do their job. It was a a job manual for Mm -hmm. bishops. It had a lot of popularity. It was translated into, excuse me, it was actually translated into Greek Mm. and used widely in the Greek East. It was adopted in Spain much later, Alfred the Great had the book translated into Anglo-Saxon. Oh, yeah. So, so it had a lot of cachet throughout the whole um, that whole early uh, medieval time. Are there any interesting specific takeaways that you know off the top of your head? Uh, I'll probably get into this in a later episode, but uh, any specific rules that would be important? One that's interesting is that he enforced strict celibacy amongst the clergy, which was the West was always much more the rule was clerical celibacy, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't very strictly enforced. There were bishops and I mean, obviously, Gregory had a great great grandfather. Maybe there was a couple (laughs) more greats in there, but who was a pope. So obviously he had children and they were all legitimate the Greek East and the Middle East was much more comfortable with married Pope or married clergy. They were all starting to get away from married bishops sure. at this point, but married priests were still very common at that point. So he's setting up the rule of clerical celibacy right there. That was one of the ones that just struck out to me, mm-hmm. but there was, um, the books are super long. They're yeah. pretty easily accessible on the internet. Right, though, right. If, somebody's dying to dig into that <laughs> it, it, i always uh, up until i started getting into this specifically i would always get confused because there's two uh popes that are famous for doing a lot of reforms both named gregory so i was never sure who to attribute the celibacy <laughs> thing to but I, I think it's worth saying that his enthusiasm for monasticism probably had a pretty big role in how he fell down on some of these uh these directives for the priests and the bishops. It's it's sort of like he took the directives that he wanted for monks and said, you should be a monk, even though you're living amongst the people and leading them kind of thing. Yeah. And that's another part of his monasticism was that <clears throat> Gregory, I'm not exactly sure if it's in this book of pastoral care, 
but Gregory was one of the first popes to start separating the monastics from the local bishops. At before that point, um, monasteries answered to whatever episcopal see they were in. Hmm. So the bishop was always their boss. Gregory started giving them more independence where they didn't necessarily answer to the bishop of the geography their uh, monastery was in. Interesting. Located in. Yeah, yeah, that's that's interesting. I had assumed that that was always the case. Uh, but okay, that's good to know. Um, so are, were there any other theological works that were worthy of note? There's a few that are attributed to Gregory, but I don't necessarily know how much Gregory was directly involved with them. He may have been, but this may also be things that were attributed to him later. Sure. One is that he organized and reorganized the Roman liturgy or mass. I think they call it the pre-Tridentine mass. The Tridentine mass was the one used, I believe... 14, 1500s-ish, it was reorganized, and it was used pretty much until Vatican II. So that, okay, yeah. And there was a form of the Tridentine Mass, which was used well before that into this time. I think they said that Gregory moved a piece here and moved a piece of it to over here, like um, where they say that our father, where they say this part. It's possible that he did that and he probably would have had the authority and the respect to do something like that. But I feel that changes like that are more evolutionary than yeah. revolutionary. That's a, something like a liturgy like that's a very conservative document. Yeah, yeah. One other one that's interesting is there's something called the Liturgy of the Pre-Sanctified Gifts that supposedly Gregory wrote when he was in Constantinople. And that's something that's actually used in Eastern churches to this day. Oh, that's interesting. Which is not cool. used very often in the uh, Roman Catholic. It's still, it's a very minor part of it, but it's a of their practice, but it's a major part of Eastern practice. Huh. That's interesting. Okay. Um, and then I, I guess the, one of the other big things that he's known for is missionary work. Um, do you have, uh, I mean, there's some, some key stories that are associated with Gregory about this. The first one that we I, we spoke about a little earlier was that the Visigoths in Spain, their king uh, Recared, yeah, converted from Arianism to Catholicism, and that it was really Gregory's fault, or his um, <laughs> at least he was the one who got uh, the king to convert. I think that's probably there was a lot of other pressures on a Visigothic king to convert. So maybe there was a little tipping point there, but because Gregory was so great, but I think that that one is that one's a little less clear. The big one is that Gregory is uh, given credit for re-Christianizing Britain right. when the Anglo-Saxons invaded in the mid four hundreds, early to mid four hundreds. The traditional telling is that. The whole island became pagan again, and it wasn't until the mid-500s with 
Gregory, who sent a big missionary expedition under Augustine of Canterbury. He wasn't Augustine of Canterbury yet. Right. And the story <laughs> is that in Rome, Gregory was in the slave market and there was these blonde haired, blue eyed children. And he said something like, you call them angles, but I call them angels or something like that. Yeah. It's probably not true. <laughs> what they think that might be more likely to be true is that there were Anglo-Saxon slaves and that the church was going through these slave markets, taking the children out of the slave markets, raising them Christian to be, become a core of missionaries that they would send later on. That's interesting, yeah. He, the, the, Gregory did send 40 missionaries to, to Britain, but by that point, the kings in Anglo-Saxon England were much more willing to listen to Christianity. That was really the thing that they needed to do to plug themselves into continental trade and continental sure. relations is that they needed to be Christian. Right. You know, for economic if economic reasons if for no none other then you also had the irish monks who were going into england at that time who were probably doing a lot of the legwork we'll see that's another point that'll come up in later medieval history is the the conflict between the anglo-saxon church and the irish church over a whole raft of practical christian issues yeah, we, we talked about that a bit in the last episode. Um, you know, the Celtic Christianity is sort of the inaccurate catch-all term, and then uh, an Irish monasticism was a huge influence up there, and it, it fit really well into the the social order in uh, in Ireland and, and Scotland. And um, then you had the the missionaries who were being sent by Gregory moving up from the south, and the uh, the fault lines built up in sort of Northumbria and that, that kind of area. I even think that in England, it's much more accurate to say that it was more of a situation like in Spain, where you have a ruling elite. Yeah. And like the Christianity was still there. It wasn't just wasn't well organized as yeah, it think... was because Christianity was still pretty light on the ground, even amongst the native populations the holdovers from the Roman Empire. That was not one of the densest Christian populations. Yeah. And it's plausible that the the leaders, the people who would have been the natural leaders of the the Christian uh, society in the British Isles sort of fled. They were the ones who had the money to, to mm -hmm. leave. And, and all urban life collapsed. So there wasn't a natural way to organize them. But at the same time, it's it's kind of we know now that there wasn't some kind of genocide. Yeah, <laughs> the the lower classes were definitely British, even after the Anglo Anglo Saxons took over. But um, speaking of uh, the the economy and slavery, um, one of the big ongoing debates about Gregory has revolved around his relationship with the Jews, and I think. Uh, this actually gets into the issue of these massive slave markets in Italy. Uh, it's just an interesting bit of background to give before we get into the Jewish issue. Um, trade in the Mediterranean had 
and you know the whole former Roman world had kind of collapsed. Uh, and one of the few commodities that was still moving was actually slaves, um, which gets into some of the the background for what we're about to talk about here. Um, there, you know, Jews in medieval society. Uh, it's going to be a whole episode at some point in the future, but for now, um, we actually have a lot of material about Gregory and the Jewish communities in Italy, and it turns out that they were actually some large and prosperous Jewish communities, um, which Christian doctrine was struggling to figure out how to deal with. Um, even you know, centuries beforehand, the there there had been this ongoing struggle to figure out how 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 to relate to the Jews because they weren't pagans. But they were this competing ideology, essentially, that rejected Christianity very explicitly at the, by this point. Um, one of the big guiding lights, it, theologically, had been St. Augustine's doctrine of the witness people, uh, which, again, we're going to go into a lot more detail, but basically St. Augustine said that it was important that the Jews survive so that they could witness how right Christianity was <laughs> and that, that, you know, so we couldn't kill or forcibly convert the Jews. We, I'm Jewish. <laughs> they, they couldn't convert, kill or forcibly convert the Jews, but um, they also shouldn't be nice to them <laughs> in any way that they, they just had to be there as sort of a token enemy of Christianity to observe the glorious success of Christianity up to the end. Um, so in this, this context, I mean, that's, that's a pretty, um, you know, it's nice that he wasn't saying to wipe them out, but uh, that's a pretty rough theology, to be honest. Um, and that was sort of the main doctrine, even of Roman legal tradition uh, up to Gregory's time. So what what can we say about uh, Gregory's record here? I think it's important to keep in mind that later ideas on anti-Semitism get kind of built on to the foundation of this point. Someone like Augustine and these earlier writers who were writing polemics against the Jews, you have to remember it's not until maybe the five, six hundreds where clear lines are being drawn between what's a Jew and what's a Christian. There's still Christians at this point who are celebrating the Easter feast on the 14th or 15th of Nisan. Right. Passover. (laughs) Yeah, on Passover. So whether it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday or whatever, that's when they're celebrating Easter and the bishops are having a big uh, fit about that. There's Christians who are going to synagogue on Saturday and then going to church on Sunday because there's, like you said, they're seeing that there's some sort of mojo that the Jews have and there's um, that they're seeing that there's a, they have something going on religiously. So the lines are not clearly, I mean, even um, with uh, the pagan religions, the Pope's in the 500s are having a fit because at the end of the Easter celebration, the people are going out to take a look at the rising sun and doing like Sol Invictus stuff. (laughs) Yeah. There's just, there's the lines are still really blurred 
they're getting less blurred at this time. Like what we would really call like real anti-Semitism is more of a function of like the 10th and 11th century where these are the Jews. They're a different religion. We know they're a separate religion. Like everybody's on the same page that we're all separate religions and we're going to kill them specifically for that. Right. That's that's later. Yeah. That's coming down the line. Yeah. One of the the big things that I'm going to be talking about later, but there's been a very, uh, since the Holocaust, obviously there's been this attempt to understand the origins of anti-Semitism and that leads to some errors in terms of looking at history in terms of leading inevitably towards the Holocaust, mm-hmm. uh, which, you know, it, it's not like St. Augustine, when he was writing about the uh, the witness people doctrine, he was going, I'm planting the seeds that are going to lead to the gas chambers. Yeah, it, it, it was a series of steps taken for purposes that were, very local and of their time and place. And certainly they built on each other over time, but you know, we're as human beings, we have a very limited ability to think in millennial terms, you know, thousands of years down the line. So, um, and, and that's really what we're talking about. Things that these little doctrinal decisions that built on each other over the course of, tens of centuries. But w- with that said, uh, you know, and that, that back background understood. Sorry? Back to Gregory. Back to Gregory. <laughs> um, it, what was his relationship with the Jews? Because it's kind of a mixed bag. Yeah, it's interesting. Gregory, he was certainly no fan of Jews, and he didn't want uh, people who were already Christian becoming Jews, but he also, it was not uncommon in certain places for synagogues to be attacked. And he was completely against that. If a synagogue was attacked, he's on record saying that the the people needed recompense for their damaged property. I think he didn't want, he didn't want Jews getting special treatment, but he wanted them being treated with, he said that they should be treated within the law. Uh, There's just a short quote. He said, this is Gregory, just as no freedom may be granted to the Jews and their communities to exceed the limits legally set for them, so they should in no way suffer through a violation of their rights. That was a common phrasing that would be used by popes later whenever they wrote about or wrote official doctrines about the Jews. Yeah, my my reading is that that's more or less the official doctrine of the church in, in general, mm-hmm. um, accepting a couple crazy uh, priests out in the countryside who weren't really properly educated, and then whatever it was that happened in Spain, which we'll talk about eventually yeah. with the Inquisition there. But the the main thrust of the church was, we follow Roman law, and Roman law says create the special place, the special basket for the Jews to sit in. And that's where they're supposed to sit. And you don't mess with that basket, but they also don't get out of that basket. (laughs) Gregory, he, um, he was totally against uh, using physical means to convert Jews to Christianity. That was, that was happening at that point in certain areas where um, 
you know, people would literally have their arms twisted to become, to convert to Christianity. But he was not against using financial or tax breaks or that sort of thing to get people to convert, which was really not outside of the norm of how the Abrahamic religions would operate in the era, you know, in the Middle East, mid, yeah. <laughs> medieval area. I mean, that was part of the dimmy uh, amongst Islam. It was just, there was a financial right. benefit to join Islam. Right. So Gregory didn't have a problem with that. What's, what's interesting in one of my sources, which is uh, Kevin Madigan, the, the medieval uh, oh, that's a great book. Yeah, that, it is. Uh, Medieval Christianity and New History. It's one of my main sources. Um, it's actually got an audiobook version for anyone who wants to go through that. It's it's great. Um, one of the things he says is that despite all the things that Gregory said about sort of keeping the Jews in their basket and not letting them get out, is that he actually, of all the popes, possibly went more out of his way than anyone else to actually give Jews special protection and benefits, uh, possibly beyond what was required by Roman law, going so far as to actually, you know, um, pick fights with Byzantine emissaries to, to protect Jewish interests. Um, he doesn't say anything about this, but one of the things I wonder about is uh, because the Jews were such an important part of the economic community of Italy at the time. And because Italy was so economically moribund, <laughs> whether that wasn't, uh, you know, at least somewhat a, um, you know, rational policy decision, essentially, to be like, uh, we, at least someone's trading, we need to protect these people. Gregory, one thing that he did do was that he said that Jews who owned Christian slaves could not own Christian slaves, that they would lose that property. Right. So I guess you could call that a form of anti-Semitism, that they weren't, that they were being denied a property right, but then they was freeing slaves. So you kind of like, you know, it's yeah. hard to take yeah, a strong like... moral take on that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that was a big thing throughout. It wasn't just something that they were the church was imposing on Jews at that point either. They, they were coming. It, it wasn't. They, they it wasn't as strong a doctrine as that it would be later. But the church gradually came down on the concept of owning Christian slaves. Uh, it was not generally acceptable. <laughs> um, it, you know. Uh, I think at this point it was more acceptable, especially given the economic importance of the slave tra slave trade in Italy. But um, it was certainly something that the church kind of looked askance on when, like, the the Catholic Franks would raid an area and take mm -hmm. Catholic slaves. They're like, you, yeah, are you serious? <laughs> and I'm sure you'll get into this later. Slavery had, in large part gone away as an institution in the medieval period. It really was really in the early modern period. It was in the uptake. I read a book, Those Terrible Middle Ages by a French Perrault, yeah. I think her name is. And she wrote that mm -hmm. it was um, with the African slave trade and the um, enslavement of uh, yeah. native people throughout the colonialized areas that slavery really skyrocketed. Yeah, the, there's some low-key debate about this, but basically the, the consensus is roughly that in most places in Europe, the there, there had been these big slave plantations in the Roman world, 
Uh, and the the numerous plagues that went through and the, the starvation and the social dislocation meant that there wasn't a new source of slaves coming in, really. Uh, and so this, you needed to work harder to protect those slaves. So the status of the slaves actually rose. They gained a lot of rights, a lot of protections. Uh, although their status was frozen, manumitting them became nearly impossible, but they their status rose. Uh, they became tied permanently to land. But then at the same time, uh, as political rights for the population in general like went away in, in the face of all these attacks, the status of normal poor people, free persons, dropped. And serfdom in the Middle Ages essentially became this, uh, and I'm going to get into this more in later episodes, it wasn't quite this simple, but you sort of mushed together uh, poor farmers and slaves into the serf class. Um, at the same time, in the early Middle Ages, slavery was still very much a thing, um, and the slave trade was very active. It's just that the economic collapse of the West meant that the slavery was all going in one direction, mm-hmm. and that was East. Uh, Europe was a source of slaves uh, for the, the Avars, the Hungarians, the Saracens, the Vikings. They would capture these slaves and move them East. Uh, there was one... There were a couple really big routes. One of them was for the Vikings through the Baltic uh, and then down to Byzantium that way. Uh, Byzantium and the the Caliphate um, through Russia. And then the other big route was overland, sort of through Central Europe along the Danube uh, and then overland through Kiev. And it's interesting, one of the main uh, founding reasons for Kiev to exist was that it was a crossing point for a couple of these slave trading routes. Um, and that's sort of a big part of behind its early prosperity. Uh, same thing for a couple of the cities in England. Uh, the the slaver, slaving in Ireland would then take people through England and off to the Baltic and stuff like that. Uh, so slavery was definitely still a thing, um, but it, it wasn't something that was practiced on local populations. Um, and, uh, you know, Christian slaves were being taken by people in Europe. Um, and and I, I should say that as much as the church frowned on it, like the Franks were definitely taking slaves. They would just sell them on to Scandinavians <laughs> who could get away with it, uh, which is, a, <laughs> it says a lot about it's how the Vikings knew that, how to attack, that they were trading, uh, trading with the Scandinavians. Uh, so the Scandinavians were very aware of what the political situation was in uh, Charlemagne's empire. Anyway, back to Gregory. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've run through, you know, a, a lot of the stuff that people attribute to him and that people attribute to what makes him the great. And just to sort of put a bow on it, um, the, the standard story is that Gregory is sort of the origins of the imperial papacy, that he, he had a couple writings where he talked about how um, the, the Pope should be in control, that it should be the head of the church. Uh, he did a lot to gain the political goodwill of people, um, definitely in Rome, but then people, the word spread. So, it, you know, all through Italy, uh, people were moving their loyalty to the church, uh, especially as bishops in other cities did similar things uh, to the almsgiving that he did in Rome. 
and this sort of began uh, the the power base of the papacy that it would grow later on. Um, what do we think about that sort of narrative? I think looking backwards, it's very easily uh, it's, we're very easily able to set that narrative. I think it was foisted upon Gregory. Previous to Gregory, the popes were in a brutal fight with Constantinople of who's going to be the theological boss of Christianity. Mm-hmm. Rome always, you have to look at this point, That's probably, we're getting into the low watermark of where Rome had theological power even in their own territory. Right. So the... Rome is trying to fight to get that power back, plus the power that they felt that they had over the universal church, all of Christendom. Right. The temporal power is getting forced onto the Pope at this point. Yeah, yeah. So the Popes are getting these two powers. They're becoming a power in the in the secular area and they're fighting to get this power in the religious area that's going to grow throughout the whole middle ages into the modern period there there's going to be stepping stones to developing those both of the powers so we can you know i guess we can kind of see that the seeds were planted in this point not necessarily with gregory yeah but that the popes are going to get a unique position where they have a lot of civil power and they're going to have a lot of religious power. Yeah. It's, it's like you said, it's like seeds being planted uh, and sort of this, this ties back to the anti-Semitism discussion really, because it's easy to impose this narrative backwards based on what we knew it was going to happen. And Gregory probably, despite he he made some statements about how the Pope should be in control of everything, blah blah blah. But you know, I, I doubt that he was when he appointed the cardinals to distribute alms to the poor people. He was thinking this is going to be the basis of the way the Pope is elected in a more streamlined fashion in several centuries. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I've always struggled with the question. Was the medieval pope in the papal lands a theocrat? Was that a theocracy? And some sometimes I'm like completely yes, and sometimes I'm completely no. And I think that that's the dichotomy. Yeah. The pope of the Middle Ages was two offices mashed together yeah. that were separate. Though. There was like a separation of church and state within one person. Yeah, it's like they would take off hats and stuff and behave in completely different yeah. manners. Uh, you know the the in some ways the 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 church and the state were blended in that whole survival of the Kaiseropapism and sort of doctrine of the Davidic king, kingship, where uh, the the king is supposed to look after the moral health of the church and the church is supposed to be the spiritual guide of the people. Um, that that whole way of looking at things was definitely a thing in the middle ages, but it was also clear that what was needed to be a successful ruler in the middle ages was so different from what Christian doctrine was that even when you had rulers who were also church officials, they would, you know, expound Christian doctrine that was so completely different from the way that they behaved um, (laughs) as rulers. And it's easy to say, call that hypocrisy but it's it's almost like they were just 
fulfilling different social functions, you know, taking off yeah. one hat and putting another one on. Um, and that may just be what was necessary <laughs> at the time. For everything, too, with the popes of wanting secular and for accumulating secular power for quite a while after Gregory, a pope still needed the seal of approval of the Byzantine emperor. Right. That would get transferred over to the holy roman emperor yeah. and that lasted for hundreds of years that the pope had to be officially stamped uh, would need the official stamp of approval of the holy roman emperor for his religious authority yeah and effectively for his uh secular authority as well yeah definitely and that's going to be something that I'm going to be talking about that process is, is going to be something I'm going to be addressing in the next couple of episodes. Cause you know, as you probably gathered from the title, the tale of two Gregory's, the next thing I'm going to be talking about is Gregory the seventh. Um, and that leads right into the investiture controversy and everything around that. Um, so, and the struggle over, you know, sort of the independence of the church versus the independence of, of the empire and, and secular rulers. This is why I needed to go back to Gregory yeah. <laughs> the first. And this is all things that are developing over the course of like a millennium. Yeah. I mean, Gregory the seventh uh, is, Oh man, I completely forget when he ruled. Um, yeah. I mean, Gregory the seventh began his papacy in 1073. So we're talking like 500 years later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not an in, inconsequential amount of time. Uh, the whole situation was very, very different in many ways. So I think that brings us, that sort of covers everything we definitely wanted to cover. Um, just like to thank you very much for coming on and, and helping us get through all this. Uh, this has been great. Oh, thank you. I hope I didn't um, go off on a tangents too much. It's just, it's so awesome. And there's so many things that all come together. Definitely. I mean, that's, that's why I needed to cover it. And these were, a lot of these were tangents that I've wanted to cover too. So um, where can, uh, where can people find out about your show? You can find all of the social media and where to subscribe and iTunes and all that at my website, a2zhistorypage.com. Great. Awesome. And um, of course, if you're listening to this show, you've heard me say it a billion times, but uh, my website is Wittenberg to Westphalia podcast.weebly.com. And again, you can get to the Facebook page and Twitter from there. You can email me. Um, please listen to all of our show, both of our shows and review us on iTunes. And um, uh, thanks everybody for listening. also thank the blue dot sessions for the intermission music and as always not a surf for the intro and outro music ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well 
HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.